This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Farah Jassat. This week we bring you a podcast from a debate that Intelligence Squared Germany put on with the motion the West should make amends with Putin, arguing for the motion that it's time for our rapprochement with Putin was the political scientist Dominique Mosey and Professor of Russian and European Politics at the University of Kent, Richard Sakwa. Arguing against the motion was the author, financier and activist Bill Browder, and the investigative reporter for The Guardian, best known for exposing the Cambridge Analytica scandal, Carol Cadwallader. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And just before we go to it, I wanted to also let you know about the other podcast series that Intelligence Squared has called How I Found My Voice. It's presented by the BBC journalist Samira Ahmed. And it's all about how prominent public figures came to find their voice from growing up their childhood experiences to the defining moments in their career. In season two, which has just launched and you can listen to now, we have guests from Michael Palin to Richard Branson, Naomi Klein, the whistleblower Chris Wiley, the British MP Jess Phillips and more. Check it out. Just search for How I Found My Voice on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Acast. Thank you to all of you who have come to discuss with us tonight. The motion is, should the West make amends with Putin? The West should make amends with Putin. And here we have two people who say yes, the West should. And here we have two people who say no, the West should not. And I would like to ask to speak in favor of the motion first, uh, Dominique Moisy. Dominique Moisy is, in my view, one of the most experienced thinkers of Europe's international role. Uh, its challenges, its opportunities, its constraints for many years, for ages, with the French Institute of International Relations. He's now with the Institut Montaigne, uh, a rather rather uh, strong and influential uh, think tank uh, in Paris now. He's published widely on international affairs, on foreign policy, uh, on big powers in their strategies. And uh, I look forward, Dominique, uh, to what you have to say to us today. 
So, over there. If the wording of the motion is the West should make amends with Putin, I'm siding with the other side. Ah, you're not allowed to do that, Dominique. I'm sorry. And uh, I don't like uh, this expression. If the expression is the West should play diplomatically with Russia, should try to combine engagement and containment with Russia, then I say, all right. I'm not naive. I know what Russia is in terms of its essence right now, in terms of its performance. It is attempting to destabilize our democratic regime in the most uh, negative manner. It has militarized its uh, diplomacy in the most dangerous way. So I'm not here to say Russia is good, Russia has been unnecessarily humiliated by us, we should make amend for what we did. This is not my position. I'm neither a nostalgic, nostalgic of the time of the Ostpolitik in the 1970s, nor a nostalgic of the Gaullist attempt uh, to be in between the West and the East. That would be totally anachronistic. We are not in the 1970s. We are even less so in the 1960s. So if I think we should try to do something different, it's for two major reasons. The first one is pragmatism. What we've been doing so far has clearly not worked. Russia has become more aggressive as time went by. But the real reason is that I think I have a strategic vision of the world which is dominated by two key factors. The first one is that America is not what America used to be. Today, Macron may try to engage with Putin, but there is someone who is encouraging Putin, who is the best ally of Putin, and this is not the French president, but this is the American president. If you see what he did recently by legalizing the settlement in Israel, is this not the best encouragement given to Russia's attitude towards Crimea. It is simply saying that might is right. The second point is that not only is not America what America used to be, but China has become the real challenge, not only for the West, but for Russia as well. To a large extent, if we want to make an historical analogy, it is with the 1870s, 1880s, the end of the 19th century, the period George Kennan, the father of containment, wrote about in his book, The Decline of Bismarck's European Order. 
At that time, France and Russia came together. France as a defeated country, humiliated by Germany, and Russia as a country looking with anxiety to the rise of its neighbor on the West. And to some extent, the equivalent of Germany at the Willemian period is China. And we have to inspire ourselves from the teachings of that period. And so, if I remember quite well, there was a British diplomat in the uh, uh, 1990s, after the fall of the Soviet Union, who coined what would become more or less the policy of the West towards Russia. He said, let's engage Russia if we can. Let's contain Russia if we must. The difficulties of today is that we have to do both, engaging and containing. And this can be done with a little subtlety and with an awareness of the fact that the real problem is not Russia but China, and that the strength of Russia should not be overestimated. It is a very weak country economically, and Russian's elite are starting to be more and more aware of that. So we have to say to Russia, all right, we're not going to trust you. You don't trust us. We're not going to uh, uh, simply say you're bad and contain you. We are going to say the ball is on your side. Your problem is with the East not with the West. You need a complete structural reviewing of your strategic priority. Do you want ever to be, for, to, to be forever the junior partner of China? A China we will, that will console you, flatter you, but that in the end will say, well, I have 20 million people on that side. There are only 6 million there. Maybe we should redraw the cards. So that is what I'm doing. But that is what I'm thinking. This is why somewhere I'm not saying the West should make a man with Putin, but the West should reconsider its policy with Russia and play with Russia the way the West played in the 19th century old diplomacy. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thanks very much, uh, Dominic. Uh, thanks also for excellent timekeeping. Uh, you were you actually were two minutes short of your eight minutes. Now let's turn to the other side and uh, begin with uh, Carol Catvalader, a decorated journalist, uh, um, nominated for Pulitzer Prize and recipient of the Orwell Prize. She's an investigative journalist, works for the Observer, the Guardian, and has made a I think a a name worldwide with the Cambridge Analytica uh, scandal where she was one of the key people to uncover that. Carol, your eight minutes, please. The rostrum is yours. Of course, I tried to smuggle a bit of that into my yeah, opening yeah. speech, so sorry. Apologies in advance. Um, thank you very much for inviting me. Um, I accepted this 
and then um, sort of looked at the format and realised that I hadn't actually done a debate since I was at school and was 18 years old. So um, don't come expecting slick professionalism. That is all I will say. Uh, that is not my brand. Um, but um, it did remind me that I was, I was a student when the Berlin Wall came down. And I was incredibly lucky to live through that moment in history. And I travelled through the Eastern Bloc and through Russia and Ukraine and Belarus and Kazakhstan. And I met amazing people. I benefited from the generosity and hospitality of Russian people. And I have incredibly fond memories of that period of my life. And so I say that because everything I'm saying is not coming from this position of Russophobia or anything like that. It is coming from the point of view of talking about Putin. Because Putin is not the Russian people. And this is two completely separate things. He is an authoritarian who uh, oversees a criminal mafia state. And he oversees a system that has enabled this class of oligarchs to steal money from the Russian people, to steal the natural resources of Russia. And it, it, they owe this debt of loyalty to him because of that. And, of course, the other thing about Putin is that he is an ex-KGB agent. Or, as he says there is no such thing as an ex-KGB agent. <laughs> and we know, we think, when we think of the KGB, we think of espionage, we think of spying. But of course, that was only part of what they did. The other part of what they set out to do, and that they still set out to do, is subversion. And it's about undermining your enemies, about destabilizing them, about causing chaos. And we now know that this is exactly what Russia did in America in 2016. And we know, we, it's all been laid out by the FBI, how the GRU uh, under, uh, subverted and undermined American social media platforms. It set out to do that, and it succeeded. And it set out to steal the emails of the Clinton campaign, and it succeeded. And it set out to have these leaked at the time, at times which would be most damaging impact to the campaign, and it succeeded. Russia attacked America, and that is a fact. And it still sounds like a mad conspiracy. We have not processed this at all, I don't think. But it is, this is just a set of facts which has been set out now by the FBI. But we are still in incredible denial about this, and nowhere more so than Britain. Because, at least in America, there has been this amazing investigation. But for us here in Europe, there has not. And I kind of count you as part of that, because what is happening in Britain also very directly affects you. And the only investigation, inquiry, that's really happened into Russian influence in Britain is this report by a joint, the Joint Intelligence Committee in Parliament. And 
This has been a big news story in Britain of the last few weeks. This has been suppressed. And it's been personally suppressed by Boris Johnson. And so I I am here to, to say to you that we have to wonder why. We have to wonder why we do not want the facts of Russian influence in Britain coming out. And, sorry, I'm not sure. How much time, how much time have I got? Well, you're at, uh, you have about three minutes left. Oh, my gosh. To the eight okay. mark. So, race, race, race. So, I'm just going to skip to the end because I still just want to tell you a little bit more about Boris Johnson because, hell, I kind of don't... I'm not... <laughs> this, is, this is an opportunity for me to smuggle some of this information into the public domain. <laughs> so, I wrote this extraordinary story a couple of weeks ago and it was about how... In the middle of the Skripal incident, when Russia unleashed a chemical weapon on Britain's streets, this is, this is a weapon prohibited in the use of war. It's used against civilians in a small market town in Britain. We know that Russia attacked our country too, just as it attacked America. And it was the same as the GRU, the military intelligence, again, who was involved. And right in the middle of that crisis, Boris Johnson went off to a summit in Brussels to speak to NATO about Russian sanctions. And that same day, he left his security detail. He flew to Italy to an oligarch's house. And whilst he was there, an ex-KGB agent flew in to meet him in this undisclosed meeting. And as, um, as I said, is there, is Putin who says there is no such thing as an ex-KGB agent? Anyway, I'm just going to, I'm going to skip to the end and say that a, fo- a former member of the British Intelligence Service said to me that we in Britain, we are so naive about Russian influence. We are so deep in denial. And we've got to stop being so naive. And because Russia, it seeks to destroy our freedoms and our prosperity and our security, and it is succeeding and uh, it wants to remake us in its own image, uh, this criminal mafia state. And so I think the idea of making amends with Russia is absurd and dangerous, and I hope that you um, not support this motion, do the other thing, overrule this motion, (laughs) disagree with this motion, vote the other way. Anyway, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Carol. Now, I think it's, it's time that we return back to, uh, uh, to the other side of the argument and hear uh, Richard Sakva. Richard is a professor, a professor of Russian uh, and European politics at the University of Kent, also works at uh, Chatham House, is engaged in a number of, of study groups and expert groups, but also has an affiliation as a senior research fellow at the National Research University uh, Higher Economics in, in Moscow. The floor is yours. Uh, 
I'm going to put forward five major arguments about why it's uh, useful to, or why it's timely, perhaps not to make amends, but certainly to engage, to talk, to treat Russia as a, a, a state worthy of discussion. And I'm going to have five basic arguments. The first one is the historical one, in which we try to put this into context. Uh, and indeed, uh, the end of the Berlin Wall 30 years ago, and this was a unique moment. Not only the Eastern European countries, but Russia itself had a democratic revolution. It's still not complete by any means. But this was a moment of opening. And that moment, uh, at the end of the Cold War, was ultimately squandered. And in many ways, this explains why we are today. What I would certainly now say is a second Cold War. And then the question is, how do we get out of it? That we had a peace order... The uh, Gorbachev at that time, then Yeltsin, Medvedev, Putin, all of them wanted to join and what, uh, what they would, the, to join the West, what we could call the historical West, that with Russia joining it, it would become a greater West. And then together we could deal with all sorts of global and other issues. Uh, instead of which, instead of this transformation, which Gorbachev still to this day in his late 80s, is still arguing that we squandered the peace at the end of the Cold War and that we really do have to find a way. Indeed, in that sense, for Gorbachev's argument, we should be making amends, that we should join uh, uh, to, to create a new security order. We never did that after the end of the Cold War. And ultimately, as a lot of people would argue, that uh, you know, with expanding NATO unmediated would leave Russia on the other side, and then clearly it would have a lot of consequences. So that would be the first argument. The second one is the personal argument. Now, Putin is one of the most uh, traduced, insulting, insulted, and indeed demonized figures of our time. Some people call it the Putin derangement syndrome, which this, the, a lot of the discussion about Putin is not the man that I've spent, indeed, the last 20-odd years studying, or indeed most, uh, the, the testimony of most people who meet him. Uh, that Putin has many personalities. Yes, he was a former security uh, official with the KGB, but he was also many other things, including uh, the head of the ec External Economic uh, um, Committee in St. Petersburg in the early 1990s under the Democratic Mayor Anatoly Sobchak. And at that stage, many people who met him at that time said he was one of the few people who would actually deliver what they promised in terms of economic investment and opportunities and so on. And then when he came to power in 2000, uh, he, he really did want to change the framework, I mean, I call it the new realism, to engage with, uh, with the West and say, okay, we made, we've messed it up in the 1990s, uh, but let's try again. Uh, David Frost, Lord George Robertson, and so on. The discussion was then even of Russia joining NATO. It was a security dilemma. He wanted to do it. Uh, and, of course, uh, in September, 25th of September uh, 2001, 21 after 9-11, he spoke in the Bundestag here in Germany, influent Germany. And if you just look at that speech, this uh, image of this sort of deranged, crazy KGB man out to subvert the West simply doesn't make sense. Uh, this is a very different uh, view of it. In many ways, uh, that uh, he, he's, he was still upset that Russia was left out from the transformation which we expected a security system at the end of the Cold War. Um, and then, uh, unfortunately, it didn't work. The third argument is the prudential argument. This makes, uh, by that I mean, 
It simply doesn't make sense to keep Russia out. I mean, Macron made this point in the 20, his speech to diplomats on the 27th of August this year, where he said that no fundamental question of European security could be uh, dealt with without Russia's participation. All sorts of issues there, nuclear non-proliferation, the, uh, the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, um, the climate uh, uh, crisis even, uh, to make uh, also the question about how to uh, deal with you know, European secu- security issues uh, and um, indeed uh, in, w- w- this is why Russia is supporting the Minsk II agreement over the Donbass. Um, and to uh, and obviously the Middle East and so on, the whole list of things. So, so in a sense work with Russia to deal with it and you'd find, and we've, many people have found the US forces in, in Syria working with Russia actually delivers results uh, and in fact Russia in many ways could have said that in some ways it has done so. And of course, us Europeans, it makes even more sense to work with Russia. And there's also the fourth argument is the time factor. That a lot of people say, look, uh, we, it may be time to make amends with Russia, but certainly not with Putin. Because Putin is, as it were, um, such a toxic figure, they would argue. I would argue it's no good waiting for Putin when his term expires in 2024. Um, and his departure will not change anything. It's very easy to say it's Putin is the fault, not the people, not the elite. In actual fact, it's quite clear that he still enjoys quite astronomic popularity. Maybe um, where there were different choices, different ways we'd be looking at it. And also that he is the collect, you know, is a collective Putin. And that in some ways he has expressed the desires of the people. And this is not a revanchist desire. Uh, every, just even recently, a Levada opinion poll showed that this democratic values of the 1991 revolution are still supported by the mass of the Russian people, and that the political system in which Russia now works is not, you know, it's certainly not a kleptocracy. There's kleptocratic elements, but it's not a kleptocracy. A kleptocracy is one where you earn 400 billion, say, in oil, and 380 ends up in Swiss bank accounts. In Russia, and it's the other way around, 20 billion ends up in Swiss bank accounts. 380 is invested. There's national projects now. They're investing $500 billion in health, welfare, infrastructure, and so on. This isn't a criminal state. This isn't a kleptocracy. And the final uh, point is that, and uh, maybe um, a bit vague, but uh, I mean, just to say, finish the fourth one. Clearly, after Putin, I mean, th- there will be almost certainly the foreign policy is. Uh, one which reflects national interests as they're defined. And after that, even uh, after Putin, you'd get a Schmutin or somebody like that who would continue the same policy. But even worse, you'd get somebody who could be uh, much tougher. The fifth argument is the philosophical one. Now, you could say this is a bit vague, but it really philosophical, cultural, if you like. Russia is part of European and indeed Western civilization, of Christendom. Uh, It it has been for a long time. Uh, What has actually happened, of course, is that this political West, as it took shape after 1945, you could call it the Atlantic West, after 1989, did not manage to uh, expand, as I say, uh, in an inclusive and engaging manner. This has been, as I said, it wasn't even Putin. This is Yeltsin in 1994 
talked about the cold peace. I was waiting for somebody to get that treatment, and I got it. So, uh, in in other words, the philosophical argument is that Russia can contribute to the healing, if you like, of our European culture. Thank you. Thank you very much, Richard, for, for these uh, condensed arguments. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Which brings us to our uh, fourth speaker, who's uh, also a rather illustrious uh, personality. Uh, And I mentioned that uh, worth three pages in Der Spiegel uh, this week, uh, which is sort of a critical review of many of his his actions and, and uh, deeds, but that's not the topic of today. I mention that simply so that you understand uh, we are very happy to have Bill Browder here, uh, who has a rich personal experience with the Russia that he is trying to or will describe to us. Bill is an investor. He started out in the in financial markets and investing. He was the largest investor in Russia uh, in in the 1990s that uh, Richard spoke about, um, and discontinued after uh, he was denied access to uh, the country. Today, he is uh, more of an activist. Um, he uses his uh, former investment entity to argue the case uh, against uh, Russian activities uh, uh, of various sorts. I won't go into that because as far as it relates to sort of combating the motion, he will uh, certainly be speaking on the basis of his own experiences with this. Okay, Bill, we're happy to have you here. The floor is yours. 
when um, uh, the Canadians uh, uh, hosted the Vancouver Olympics, it cost $6 billion for their Winter Olympics. Um, when the Russians, when Vladimir Putin hosted the Sochi Olympics, it cost $50 billion to host the Olympics. Um, why so much more expensive? Because uh, $44 billion was stolen. Um, so um, when I hear these discussions about uh, $20 billion being stolen and $380 billion being uh, invested in the Russian economy, um, I have a lot of detailed forensic knowledge that that's simply not true. Now, I'll get to that in a second, but let's just look at Putin's record. So Vladimir Putin, uh, in recent years, has annexed Crimea. That's the first time that a, uh, a border of a European country has been changed by force. Uh, he has invaded eastern Ukraine, and, and his army has killed 15,000 Ukrainian soldiers. Um, Russian uh, bombers, uh, 2,000 Russian servicemen and uh, many dozens of Russian bombers have relocated to Syria to run bombing runs across Syria, um, killing innocent people, bombing hospitals, etc., and setting off a wave of refugees which has gone all over the world, including here to Germany. Uh, They've institutionalized uh, sports cheating through doping um, and so uh, have been excluded from a number of uh, Olympics and probably will be in the future. Um, they have uh, uh, laundered hundreds of billions of dollars of illicit funds from Russia to the West and infected our banking system um, and has, as Carol has said, have, have tried to interfere with just about every Western election, the French elections, the German elections, the British elections, and of course, as most people know, the U.S. elections. So when I looked at this um, uh, invitation, the West should make amends with Putin, I had to laugh because um, I can't imagine what we're making amends for. This is like a, a battered wife making amends to her husband is beating her um, we've got nothing to amend for. It's ridiculous. Um, but, but furthermore, to, just, just for the sake of argument, I've heard people say, well, it was really our fault that by expanding NATO, we've provoked Putin to invading all these countries and cheating in the Olympics and doing all this other stuff. It was our fault. And we should really try to be nicer to him because maybe if we're nicer to him, then he'll be nicer to us. And I think that's an absurd thought. That's an appeasement has never worked. But for anyone who, who harbors that thought, and maybe there are people thinking we really should do that, I just want to explain to you what, what the original sin is which has caused Putin to behave the way that he behaves because there's nothing we can do to change his behavior. And the original sin is money. Vladimir Putin started out as pres uh, president of Russia uh, not because he wanted to run Russia. He, he started out as president of Russia because he wanted to get rich. And that's why everybody goes into government service in Russia, is to get rich. And over a period of time, Putin has gotten rich. I estimate him to be worth $200 billion. 
Um, in order to get that $200 billion, he has had to um, uh, kill, uh, extort, kidnap, and do various other types of things to people. He's stolen that money from other people. He's stolen that money from the state. And the people around him over a 20-year period have stolen a trillion dollars. Now, that's money that should have been spent on hospitals, on schools, on roads, on public services that hasn't been spent on that. And Russia is supposed to be a democracy, a democracy where um, everyone has a chance to pick their leader. And in a democracy, you can't steal all the money, make everybody else poor, and be reelected. And so what do you do? Well, you make sure there's nobody running against you. You kill your opponents like Boris Nemtsov. Um, you exile them like Gary Kasparov, or you put them in jail like Alexei Navalny and others. And so you get rid of all your competition. But even that still doesn't work if everybody is poor and you have all the money. And so what do you, what do, you do then? Well, you can't, people are going to be angry at you, and so you have to make them angry at somebody else. So how do you do that? It's in Machiavelli 101. You find a foreign enemy. And so Ukraine should have never been an enemy of Russia. I can't think of two countries that have more in common with each other than Ukraine and Russia. But they created, the Russians, through a, a, a propaganda campaign, created um, Ukraine as an enemy. They said that they were going to, uh, they were fascists and Nazis, and they were going to go after um, Russian-speaking people and, and eat Russian babies or whatever. And, and they did this over a three-month period. Then they invaded, and... Uh, and that kind of worked, and that, and that elevated Putin's approval ratings. They weren't ma mad at him anymore. They were mad at Ukraine. Eventually, people got tired of the Ukraine situation. They went into Syria. Eventually, they got tired of the Syria situation. He started hacking everybody's elections. He is not going to behave differently no matter what we do with him. It's all about him fearing his own people. And what I can tell you for sure is that as the economy continues to stagnate, as more money continues to be stolen, as people get angrier, and as the current things that he does wear off, um, he's going to have to do more bad stuff. And so there's only one possibility with Vladimir Putin, which is hardcore containment. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. So now we've heard from the four speakers, um, and uh, you, before they started, you have cast your vote. So, you know, the speakers uh, have not influenced that vote yet, but they may have influenced your thinking already. 22% undecided. But 22% hmm? undecided. So, you know, the, these are the people that you need to, to capture. Now the, that's the low-hanging fruits, but I can tell you, that yes, uh, the West should make that uh, is 19%, no? and no is 59%. So basically, you, yours is a home run. No, you have to make sure that you, in the Q&A session, don't spoil your, your uh, <laughs> readings. And you, you have some ground, you know, that you can, we will see later on how you do that. We have the accurate numbers there? Yeah, you see, 59 say no. Yes, it's 19%, 22% undecided. And with this, we go to Q&A right away. Now, the gentleman here is first, and I will, and I see more, I will gather a few. Uh, my name is Caleb Larson, Deutsche Welle. Um, 
You had mentioned, Mr. Browder, uh, containment. Um, that, to me, seems like sort of an old Cold War perspective. Trade between the U.S. and Russia at the time was maybe a couple billion dollars, which is obviously today not the case. So I'm wondering, especially with China drifting into, uh, excuse me, Russia drifting into China's access uh, orbit, rather, what does that look like practically? If you could what, clarify your statement. What, what's the question? What that looks like practically, containment. Okay. All right. Thank you. Next is the gentleman down here. Hi, my name is Camillo. And I've, uh, the, my question is, does this sentence make sense when Putin doesn't, might not want to make amends with us at all? I mean, that presumes that he's waiting for us to make amends, but I don't think he is at all. So it's a bit of a mood question. All right. That's a question for, for either Dominic or Richard. Yeah, for Dominic. Um, Bill, the containment point. So the, um, uh, back in the Cold War times, we contained um, the Soviet Union who was trying to export an evil form of communism. Um, now we're, we're dealing with um, a criminal regime where we're trying to contain um, Vladimir Putin who's exporting criminality. And I should point out that Russia is not a very strong state in most, res in most measurable respects. Russia... Uh, has an economy the size of the state of New York. Um, and so they, ha they have no economic power to flex their muscles. Um, Russia has a military budget which is 90% less than the U.S. military budget. And I would argue that 80% of that 10% is stolen through graft, which means that their comparable military budget is 2% of the United States. And so th they could barely win a war with Georgia when they went to war. Um, they're not a military threat with the one exception which is their um, nuclear weapons. Um, the, um, and therefore, what, what, he, what Vladimir Putin can do um, is this asymmetric type of warfare. That's what Carol's talking about. It's um, uh, doing it through social media, through um, bots, through Facebook. Um, it's uh, through money laundering. It's through... Into corrupting individual people, politicians, and we've seen a lot of that in a lot of countries, and particularly in the UK. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we have to come up with strategies of, of how do you contain that? Um, and one of the best strategies I've come up with um, is that while at, on one hand they do all this evil stuff, but on the other hand, they have the whole purpose of this is to, st to steal money and keep their stolen money safe in the West. And that's their Achilles heel. And we came up with this thing called the Magnitsky Act, which is a piece of legislation which targets specific individuals who are involved in human rights abuse and kleptocracy and going after their assets in the West. And that is something which works perfectly against the Putin regime. Uh -huh. it's, been, it's been used a little bit. It needs to be used a lot more. It needs to be implemented by more countries. Um, that's one of the reasons why... Um, in Germany and many other European countries uh -huh. to get the EU to do the same thing the United States, Canada, and the UK have done. All right. Thanks. Uh, Dominic, what if Putin doesn't want to engage with us? How do we engage a Russia that doesn't want to engage? Let's start uh, from a bit below. I repeat, I didn't like the wordings. I would have voted uh, no myself with such a wording. Uh, but I'm here 
uh, because you invited me. Absolutely, uh, yes. Because of my president. <laughs> And, uh, part also. and I come from a country... I think who, we invited you before he made these statements. Yeah, well, he launched that initiative yeah. after he knew that you would come. Uh, yeah. Flattery will lead you yeah. nowhere. You reached yeah. the top already. Um, the, no, the, the, the point I wanted to make is that I come from a country where fake news, disinformation, whatever tactics from Russia didn't work. Uh, they did their trick to their best. And at the end of the day, there was 20% differences mm -hmm. between the extreme right, which Putin tried to help, and the party of reason, which finally won. And if you look, I mean, it's, it's difficult, of course. Uh, Macron is not uh, a total success, uh, understatement of the year. Uh, yet, If you look at the polls, and they are much too early, for 2022, next presidential election, there's still 10 points difference uh, between the president and uh, the extreme right. Mm -hmm. So what I mean by that is that somewhere we are much more resilient than the Russian believe we are. Mm -hmm. And they are much weaker than they think they are. Uh, in some ways, uh, we should not underestimate what's happening in the streets of Hong Kong. It shows that people are willing to die for democracy. And there is a natural resilience of democracy. And Putin is bad, I agree. But China is not great either. Mm -hmm. uh, if you compare uh, what the, the countries are doing for their respective citizens, what well, we just learned uh, from what hap what's happening in Xinjiang mm. is not really great either. And we should not be solely obsessed with Russia. Uh, and my last point is that somewhere, and uh, I'm less obsessed with money mm -hmm. uh, than Bill Broder is, And it shows in my banking account. Uh, uh, I, I, I think somewhere uh, that man, doesn't, man does not live by bread alone. And to try a unidimensional explanation of Russia's attitude based exclusively on greed is missing the complexity of the reality. There are nationalistic emotions that are really present, that do exist. I mean, I was very involved in the process of trying to teach democracy to Russians in the early 1990s. I was one of the creators of a school, Moscow School for Political Studies. Uh, I tried to teach what democracy is about to Duma members. And from that, those most liberal students, they already told me, well, you know, Ukraine, it's ours. Ukraine, it's our history. Mm. Kiev, it's our, one of our capitals. And they were the most liberal, the most open. And it had nothing to do with money mm -hmm. that they wanted to control. Mm -hmm. It was to do with de-cultural emotions. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Okay. 
Hi, I'm Kate Ferguson from Deutsche Welle. My question is if you think the West is in a position to act in unity at all. Carol. So I was going to answer the question about whether we're able, if there the lack of unity in the West, if we are able to, um, to rebut Russia's expansionism, aggressive expansionism. And I think the thing, I, I posted this, this little video on Twitter, I think it was just last night actually, and it was this video of an ex-KGB agent from 35 years ago, and he was talking about the strategies and about this process of destabilizing the truth. And that once you had destabilized the truth and people didn't know black from white or evidence from conspiracy theory, it's, he said, and then, you know, you have cr- a crisis. And he said, and a crisis can be as little as six weeks to destroy a country. It was this incredibly chilling interview. And, and, and the thing about that is, is that these old techniques which were developed out of the Soviet Union have met the new technology of Silicon Valley. And this, these open platforms, this open information space, met this incredibly aggressive um, and sophisticated military techniques from the Soviet Union. And it's created this absolute firestorm of disinformation. And that is what we are dealing with at the moment um, all across the world, actually, because of this, the, the, the platforms have enabled these yeah. bad actors to destabilize truth. And that's why the answer isn't, doesn't just lie with Russia. It also lies with the Silicon Valley companies, because this is the platform for this information warfare, which is what we know Russia is exporting all across the world. And it practiced in Ukraine, as well as Bill mentioning that. I mean, that you can see the effects of that information warfare in real hard geopolitical and human terms. And I really think that that is not going to be the last, um, the last, sorry, the last domino in the, in the sequence. And we have to, what comes next? But our lack of unity, we can already see its impact in the Middle East to combine those questions. And I think this is where, for me, our unity must come and be directed at Silicon Valley uh-huh. because that world is in our world and that is something that we can do something about and that is a way actually of combating Russia and Putin. Good. Thank you. Dominique, a couple of points have been made in yeah. your direction. Um, can we have a common yeah. uh, European policy towards Russia? Well, I think on the issue of Russia... Uh, there are at least 28 shades of grey. And I'm not sure it is as sexy mm. as uh, in, the, in the novel. Mm. You have uh, uh, the very light grey. Uh, and the, the country that comes to mind, the one that is the most pro-Russian, is probably Italy. And at the other extreme, dark grey... Uh, you probably have Great Britain and Poland. Mm. And in between, you have the rest. And France and Germany being somewhere close to each other in a middle kind of position. Uh 
and uh, you have to deal with that. Uh, and it's difficult. And uh, uh, one of the key issues today, to my mind, is that these variations of grey towards Russia are demultiplied when it comes to now the United States. Yeah. What do you do uh, with uh, the United States? Uh, and, and to my mind, this is the m most important geopolitical issue. It's not about Putin, it's not about Xi Jinping, it's about who is going to be the next president of the United States. Can the West survive four more years of Trump? Mm -hmm. The West can survive two or four more years of Vladimir Putin. Mm. And, and, and this is something which uh, is, to my mind, essential. I mean, just one word on the Middle East. Something terrible has happened, which is that there is a delegitimization of the words of the United States. Uh, I remember uh, in uh, uh, 2003, uh, there were people demonstrating in the streets of most European cities to denounce the American intervention in Iraq. Mm. There were Kurdish Syrian uh, launching a stone at the retreating American troops. You've been betraying us. Yeah. And it is essential for our topic because people say in the Middle East, I was in Qatar not long ago, we don't like Russia, but we trust Russia. We may have liked America. We no longer trust America. And this is the major problem. Again, it's not what Putin does, it's what America has become. And from that standpoint, we have to take a slightly different position vis-à-vis -vis Russia, precisely because the strategic environment has so radically changed. Now, if I could say something, uh -huh. I had the, the, um, the chance, dubious chance, of having the first dinner with Putin in 2000 when he came to Paris. And uh, I asked him a question. And I said, Mr. President, what are the three portraits you have in your office in the Kremlin? And he said, Peter the Great, mm -hmm. it's Russian history, Pushkin, it's Russian culture, and the goal, mm -hmm. because it's the reconstruction of the country. And I turned to my neighbors, who was the Swedish ambassador, and I said, I don't trust that man. I don't like that man, but we'll have to live with it. Yeah. He has some thing in him. Mm -hmm. All right. Voting is closed now. Last time, we had uh, people saying, uh, yes, we should make amends with Putin. Don't, don't show it now. 19% at the outset. And 59% said no, with 22% undecided. Now, let's see what it is, what it is now. I, I, can, I can say that, that actually both camps have won in, this, in the course of the debate because you have pulled people onto your side. So your side, your camp, the no camp, has won six percentage points and the yes camp has won five percentage points. So the result, and now you should please show it if you have it, It's yes, it's 24%, uh, 
No, it's 65%, and undecided is a mere 11%. So we've halved, we've halved the undecided people. But you see, the, after this debate, people are even more convinced, or to a larger share convinced, that uh, we should not make uh, amends with Russia. Uh, I thank you all uh, for coming and for participating in this. Uh, you can give us a, a fiery round of applause as we march out of this auditorium. Yeah! Thank you! What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.